So the idea in Tibetan Buddhism is that uh, that teachings aren't just written down in books and handed from one person to another. They're revealed when the time is right, which is quite an interesting idea, actually. So Padmasambhava um, was an Indian teacher, actually, who went to Tibet in the 8th century. And um, he hid all these teachings all over the place that were then later revealed. Um, the, the, the advice from the lotus born is actually his teachings to his main Tibetan uh, female disciple, Yeshe Sogyal. And it's quite interesting because, you know, it's quite an unusual way to think about things. I don't think we necessarily have to take it that literally. I think what, it's, what it does, whether we take it literally or not, it means that um, the Dharma is not something sort of fixed once and for all. It's something that is revealed over time, um, according to the culture and um, the time that it's meeting. So the Buddha laid down quite concrete principles, um, helpful principles, but the meaning of those principles gets revealed over time more and more and more as um, cultures change and people change. I think we have the same experience ourselves actually, which is, uh, Sometimes you have a kind of favourite Dharma book and um, you go and read it a bit later and you realise you get a completely different meaning from it. It's almost like the meaning of that uh, Dharma book is revealed over time in different ways and you notice things in it at a later date that you never noticed before. And of course that's because you've changed and what you're looking for changes. So what you see in the actual text changes. That's why it's uh, very important to kind of go back to the Dharma books that we have and keep reading them. So um, I've slightly reordered what his uh, conditions for faith are, but they're basically in your handout, they're the bit with a line next to them. <laughs> a long line. So um, the first thing he says to Yeshe Sogyal is he says that uh, to escape samsaric existence, you must have faith in the path to liberation. So with that opening line, it's quite interesting because um, he's saying we need faith in the path, not just the goal. Um, he's not just saying you must have faith in the Buddha or the Dharma or even the Sangha, but also faith that you're on the right track. Um, uh, according to Buddhism, in a way, one of the kind of worst wrong views you can get stuck in is not believing that there's a path, not believing that there's a way from you to there, if you see what I mean. And thinking that your mental state and your kind of state of consciousness is the pinnacle of existence, and this is the way you're going to remain forever. According to Buddhism, that's a very, very painful and stuck place to be. If you think there's the no path, then there's no possibility of growth and change. So it's very important in our spiritual lives to believe that we are um, on the path. Uh, there is a path and we are on it. So I was thinking about this in, in, in my own practice. And I think it goes back to the uh, Buddha's advice of investigation of a teacher or investigation of the Sangha. Actually, I don't think it is just about the person of the teacher himself or herself. Um, I think the main crux of the matter is, can that person lead you on the path? Um, 
is that person sort of embodying the path? Are they a bit further on than you? And can they show you the path to follow? Um, the Buddha's advice is that we listen to the teachings from that person or from the Sangha and we reflect on those teachings. And when we reflect on those teachings, we put them into practice. And when we put the teachings into practice, we realize the truth from up for ourselves. So in a way, what the Buddha's talking about is a path, a path of listening, reflecting and meditating or becoming. So that's the main thing that we've kind of got to get a hold of is that there is a path and we're on it. So thinking about sort of recent issues, I was thinking about Panti himself. I don't think he's the perfect teacher and he himself says he's not the perfect teacher. Uh, I don't think he is someone who's necessarily completely free from greed. Uh, for example. And he himself has said that he'd like to make a confession about breaking the precepts. But I do think that he is substantially further along the path than I am, and I think that his teachings can lead me into the Dharma. They are enough for me to listen to and reflect on and meditate on. So that's the where I have faith, for example, in um, this particular presentation of the Dharma. It's not that I think that... Um, the founder of this order is necessarily perfect. But it, I do have a lot of faith in the path that he's laid out, and I think it works. Otherwise, I certainly wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be um, helping people train for ordination. Um, on our last retreat at Tiratnaloka, the retreat was uh, on what is the order, and someone asked a question at the beginning of the retreat. They said, is this the best context for the bodhicitta to arise for me? And um, we kind of kept that question throughout the retreat. And actually, I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here. If this wasn't the best conditions for um, the awakening mind or the uh, will to enlightenment um, to arise, then I, then I wouldn't be here. And for all its faults, I do actually think this is a very, very good context for the bodhicitta to arise, the best that I have found. So the first thing that um, Padmasambhava is asking you to do is really to ask yourself whether you have faith in the path to liberation. Um, not just the goal, but the path itself. And he says that this faith arises through causes and conditions and not on its own. I really like this because um, partly I was, I was brought up as a Christian and uh, it was very much presented at that time that you either have faith or you don't. Um, and if you don't have faith, you're basically heathen and a bit rubbish. And if you do have faith, you're saved. But actually, I don't think it's quite like that. I don't think it's like that probably even in Christianity and I don't think it's really like that in Buddhism. Um, like all emotions, faith arises on conditions and is itself a condition for other experiences to arise, other positive emotions to arise. So whether we have faith or not is based on um, conditions. It means we have to take initiative um, to allow the conditions for faith to arise or put, set up the conditions for faith to arise. Which basically means for me, you can fall into despondency quite a lot. Actually, uh, that's my responsibility. Um, uh, it's my responsibility to make sure that the conditions for faith are present in my life. 
And it also means that I have to make an effort to maintain faith when it has arisen. It's, it's not just going to be sustained forever. I have to set up the conditions to allow it to sustain. So faith arises through causes and conditions and not on its own. And he says, faith arises when you take impermanence to heart. So when things change, our usual response is often a shock or disbelief. It's a, a sense of um, what Shanti Devi says. He says um, that life has broken its promises. Basically, we think it's unfair. And when we think that it's unfair that things change, um, we look for someone to blame. Who did it? Whose fault is it that this has changed? And in a way, all of that process is a, a resistance to the flux that is life itself. Actually, everything is change. Uh, all our lives, all our experience are in a constant state of flux. There's good times and bad. And even spiritual states don't, uh, don't um, maintain on their own. Uh, they don't necessarily uh, maintain a sort of one positive state. So if we can really take this on, if we can really take on that impermanence uh, is the nature of the way things are, we can have another response. If we cultivate a direct experience in the heart of impermanence, and not just an idea, but really see it in our heart, um, something else emerges. And I think what emerges is that in the flux of life, we can see what is important beyond the reach of change. And what we see is that because everything changes, we can also change and we can also grow. There's a really lovely story actually in the um, uh, time of the Buddha where a disciple called Kappa comes to see the Buddha. And he really, you can see he's really got this kind of burning, urgent question. He sees life as a flood. He sees life as ever-changing, constantly moving. And this really, really distresses him. He sees it as an urgent spiritual problem. And he says, what are we to do in the midst of all this change, in the midst of the flood, the great river of existence? What are we to do? And the Buddha replies that there is an island beyond the reach of change. And that island is enlightenment, is Nibbana. And I think we can, I think the closest that I've particularly had to that experience is when someone dies, someone, um, maybe someone we're quite close to dies. It's a bit like when someone dies, everything becomes a bit unreal. You know, everything else, you're sort of operating in life, but it doesn't, it sort of loses its solidity in some way. And the only thing that's real are universal values, particularly kindness, kindness and truth. It's almost like they're, in, in a way, they're not a solid thing in themselves. They're a sort of response to the way things are. But in that impermanence, in that unreality, they're basically the only thing that we can really cling to, the only thing that seems important or worthwhile. And I think that's what Padmasambha is pointing to. When you really take impermanence to heart, when you really feel it, you know what's of value um, beyond the reach of change. He says, faith arises when remembering cause and effect. So faith arises um, when you realise that whatever you do will come to fruition at some time. 
Sometimes that's quite hard to see because you don't immediately see the results of action. Um, I think this is particularly true in when we have the experience of a kind of lack of faith. It's important to see that it's not permanent, um, that it is itself conditioned. And what we have to do is remembering, remember that um, uh, of all the positive changes you sort of made in the past and how that will have an effect. All the work that you've done has had an effect, but sometimes you can't see it immediately. I think this is partly because we try and fix the results of our actions. We have an idea, you know, that if I meditate really, really, really hard every day, I'm going to get into these kind of massive blissful states of dhyana. And you've got a very fixed idea. We all have a very fixed idea of what that's going to look like. Actually, it's not quite like that. Um, so we soon discover that it does have an effect, but we can't necessarily predict what that effect will be. And sometimes when it's only when you look back that you can really see what the effects of, of your actions actually have been. So what Padmasambhava is doing is he's reminding us that, yes, actions do have consequences, and that means positive actions as well. Our positive actions, our meditation, uh, our coming to the Buddhist centre, perhaps even when we don't feel like it, our engaging with Buddhist study, all of those things, our acts of kindness, our ethical practice, will have an effect. But you won't necessarily know what it will be immediately. Um, you've just got to sometimes cling on to the fact that actually it does have an effect. I sometimes notice myself that I've been working very, very hard. And... Um, I sometimes think, you know, what's the point of, of all this kind of teaching the Dharma or helping people to understand the principles of the order and the movement? And, um, you know, in, in Tiratna Loka, sometimes you're sort of on the go right from sort of half past six in the morning till 9.30 at night. And you think, sometimes you think, you know, what's the benefit of all of this? And actually, it's only when I stop and go on retreat myself that I really see the, uh, it's almost like all that merit comes to fruition then. But sometimes, you know, I have to put myself into the, the right conditions to allow that positive um, fruition to happen. So those are the kind of basic principles. Faith arises when you take impermanence to heart. Faith arises when remembering cause and effect. And then Padmasambhava asks us to reflect on dukkha, on, dis, on unsatisfactoriness. So he says, faith arises when being in painful difficulties. So he goes back to dukkha itself, the experience of, of pain, of unsatisfactoriness. But what's interesting about this here is that uh, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or even painful experience doesn't always lead to faith. You know, there's plenty of people who have a lot of pain and um, dissatisfaction in their lives and it's not necessarily going to lead them to faith. Sometimes it leads them to quite sort of uh, deep patterns of aversion. So what, um, what Padmasambhava is suggesting here is that instead of uh, just being in dukkha, it's almost like we have to investigate dukkha. We have to see its universality. We have to sort of see into the heart of what dukkha really is, rather than just getting into patterns of aversion to dukkha. Usually we tend to see painful difficulties as an obstacle and we try and seek comfort by avoiding the difficulty itself. 
But Padmasambhava has quite a different way of, uh, of exploring this. So in the myths of, of Padmasambhava, and he does have a lot of myths associated with him, the way that uh, he's, ve he's very well known for taming demons. And the way that Padmasambhava tames demons is he gets right inside them. There's one story about him turning into a little pig and uh, going right inside, I think it might be the anus of a demon. <laughs> so in a way, what he's mythologically saying, it's, you know, you've got to read this mythically, not literally, um, <laughs> hopefully. Otherwise that'll be a new story for the controversy of tree that now. <laughs> Um, is actually what you're doing is you're just getting into the heart of the demon itself, into the heart of the difficulty, into the heart of Dukkha, and understanding what its significance really is. Um, the Buddha did a sort of similar approach without kind of colourful <laughs> images. He, he um, said of himself that it was before he was enlightened, he said he saw all beings like fish struggling in water that was too shallow, gasping for breath and pushing each other out of the way. And he had this kind of vision of, in a way, horror. He said he was frightened and he longed to place, uh, find a place of shelter, but he couldn't find it. He said, there's nothing in this world that is permanent, nothing that is solid at base. And then he said, but what he could see was a thorn in the heart, a thorn in the heart that could be taken out. It's almost like he had to really enter into that um, sort of vision of dip pain and difficulty and unsatisfactoriness and see that there was a different possibility, see that there was a thorn, see that it could be taken out. And there's an image there of the solution being found inside the heart of the difficulty. Uh, as Sangharachita says, the secret of bondage is the secret of liberation. You have to find out what Dukkha arises from and what's it all about. So Padmasambhava says you've got to see the suffering, faith arises when we see the suffering of another being. So one of them is reflecting on your own Dukkha, the other is reflecting on the Dukkha of, of someone else. Um, sometimes you don't always have to suffer yourself to understand the nature of suffering. Sometimes you can see the significance of suffering in someone else and that will lead you onto the path. So I think that's particularly true of myself, actually. Um, I started to sort of have, I started really to reflect on the nature of Dukkha, if you like to call it that, when I was about 10. And it was partly because I went to India um, at that age and uh, I saw a level of suffering that I just never, ever experienced before. And I started to wonder, what is this? How is it that human life can be treated with such disregard? I think I was very, very shocked at the number of people and the sort of lack of care for extreme poverty. And um, that made me really reflect on things. And I remember at that time also was the Zeebrugge disaster. She must be slightly younger than 10 because I think it's just had its 30th anniversary. But in that disaster, the, the ferry doors were left open and um, the sea came in and uh, the ferry sank and a lot of people died. I can't remember how many. But I remember watching it on TV and thinking to myself, I was in my pyjamas and we were about to have breakfast. And I remember thinking, I'm going to leave this TV and I'm going to go and eat my breakfast with my family. And... Um, 
there's some people whose relatives have just died and they're not going to just go and eat their breakfast with their family and their life is just suddenly completely different from this morning on and I remember thinking it's not okay for me to just go and eat my breakfast and pretend nothing's happened and just ignore their suffering and I remember standing in front of the TV and really crying and my father just couldn't understand why I'd be so affected by by you know a disaster disasters happen they're on TV um, but I think that's what it was I, I'd really seen something about the suffering of others and saw that the suff I couldn't ignore their suffering and live a life that didn't include it. And I think in that moment I saw the sort of futility in the game of life, you know, that you just kind of get on with your own bit of it. You just sort of get a job and then have a family and then, I don't know, retire and then die or something. I just couldn't quite do it in a way. I had to live a life that uh, really made sense of that suffering. The Buddha himself had a vision uh, after his enlightenment. He had a vision of lotuses. And he saw how all beings were like lotuses sort of growing out of the mud of existence, which is a very, very positive image. But it also has to include the mud, that, uh, that there is suffering. But within that suffering, there's also potential. And this is where the faith arises. It's interesting that Padmasambha is not talking about compassion arising um, when seeing the suffering of another being. He's talking about faith. So faith is when we not only see the suffering of another person, but we also see that there's a possibility for everyone that's beyond suffering. Um, we've got to be able to see the mud and the lotuses. Faith is a vision of the path. It's the vision of, uh, of a possibility of complete transcendence. Whereas compassion is more a vision of the wheel, of um, the endless sort of circling of life and death. Um, compassion is about relieving suffering, whereas faith is about going beyond suffering. So when we really see into the heart of the suffering of, of other people, it leaves us... Um, with this sense that we've got to get on with our practice, that we've got to enable transcendence to happen. I think the other thing that happened to me actually in childhood uh, is um, I used to really love the story of, um, the fairy stories of Oscar Wilde. And they're all about the suffering of people and um, the possibility of something that transcends that suffering. And I could go on about Oscar Wilde's fairy stories. I could recite quite a large part of Oscar Wilde's fairy stories, but I'll save you from that. But there's one line where he says, um, uh, there is no my mystery as great as misery. And I really remember that from childhood, thinking that misery or suffering is not just something to be avoided. It is the heart of the mystery. So... Um, Really, I think this, one, this particular condition for faith is about seeing into our own suffering, seeing into the suffering of others, and letting that um, put us in touch with faith, um, the possibility of transcendence. Padmasambha also talks about contemplating the defects of samsaric existence. So it's more than just reflecting on dukkha or on suffering. It's also contemplating impermanence, insubstantiality, even the ugliness of life. Um, it means that we have to take that reflection of the nature of existence 
um, into even the positive experiences that we have. Even in the midst of quite a pleasant sort of samsaric existence, if you like, we have to have that reflection, is this enough? I think for me that reflection really does come into the fact that I think, well, it's okay for me to have this experience, but it's not universal. What about, what about other people? But I think we can also have that sort of sense that uh, even in the midst of, um, you know, quite a happy time, in a way it's not quite enough. It's not really what's going to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. There's something in it that, well, partly we know it's going to end, but partly there's something in it that just isn't quite fulfilling our total needs. And sometimes we can get that experience where we've been really looking forward to something and um, it happens, it's going well, but in some ways it's just not enough. Um, and again, I think I, rem I had these experiences in, very much in childhood. I remember it was autumn and we were all kind of catching leaves as they fell on the ground. And I remember thinking, I think I must have been quite a reflective child, but anyway, uh, <laughs> maybe I just didn't really have enough fun. But I remember catching these leaves and thinking, I'm happy, and then thinking, and is that it? So, uh, having a sense that actually there has to be something more. Um, so it's not a kind of pessimistic sort of dour thing. It's more like actually we can be capable of so much more. There's something so much more than we can be a part of. And that's the next part of um, Padmasambha's reflections. There's a reflection on Dukkha, but there's also investigation of the spiral path. There's investigation of Dukkha, the sort of wheel of life, endless round of existence. But there's also investigation of what's possible, uh, of what's possible in the, in the nature of the path. So he says that faith arises when reading sutras and tantras. So here we are, we're not talking anymore about reflecting on our direct experience. We're talking about a kind of response to hearing the truth. And sometimes this is quite intuitive. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a video which is uh, about the early days of the movement. And someone was saying in that, that when Bhante originally taught meditation, he used to chant the Heart Sutra in Sanskrit at the beginning, which we wouldn't do now because we'd be afraid of it doing a bit foreign. But actually at the time they said it was just so magical, they didn't understand a word of it, but it was something so beautiful and magical, they just had this response. Um, and I think that's sometimes what the sutras and tantras can evoke in us. We don't really, uh, I mean actually we don't study the tantras so much, particularly sutras, which are the discourses of the Buddha. Um, we can hear them and sometimes we don't know why we respond so much. It just touches our heart in some way. Sometimes it's the images or the, um, sometimes it's quite a kind of practical teaching, but something in it we just remember and take to heart, even though we don't know why. I remember actually asking Panti about reflection and he says, well, you don't choose the reflection. The reflection chooses you and you don't even know why. You just hear it and it sort of sticks. You don't even have to really make an effort to learn it by heart because um, it's already there. Just a little bit of effort and you've got the whole thing. I think what they do is they, um, they hold a doorway open to another world. Their co the communication of the wisdom of the Buddha and the great masters of Buddhism, they're the communication from the enlightened mind. 
And that kind of opens us out into a different world. Um, the great uh, Chinese master, Zhe Yi, however it's pronounced, he said, he said that the devotion is the highest state for the Bodhisattva. Because the closer you get to the truth, the more you realise how beautiful it is, how marvellous it is, how uh, all-encompassing and sort of profound it is. So it's a bit like that. I think the closer we get to the truth, when we hear the sutras and the tantras, they open out something to us. They give us a glimpse of what's just beyond. So faith arises when reading sutras and tantras. He says, faith arises when associating with faithful companions. Sometimes we need our friends to, um, in a way, provide a bigger perspective for us. Um, friends can help us remember cause and effect or conditions. They can remember, um, help us to remember all the positive changes that we have done in our lives. And they can help us see through difficult times. Sometimes we need our friends just to inspire us with their faith. I think the point that uh, Padmasambha is making here is that we're influenced by our company. And this is a point that the Buddha makes again and again. We're not isolated individuals. If we want to cu cultivate faith, we have to be around people who embody that faith. Um, and an atmosphere of doubt or an atmosphere of faith is collective. It's sort of a mood. I think uh, one of the things that I'm realising more and more is that people aren't really convinced by rational argument. Um, in Myers-Briggs type, I'm a high T. So I find this really quite confusing and strange. Um, but actually, they're not. You can argue a point till the cows come home. And actually, people don't really understand it. This is what I find terribly confusing. I think I've just given you a rational argument with something which I believe is right and you haven't totally followed it. So what's going on? Um, but actually, I think it's, uh, I think people respond more to a sort of intuitive sense in a mood of other people. Um, they respond to a kind of myth, a collective myth that they're holding on to, which, um, and myself included, which we just... Uh, create around ourselves. So I'm sure some of you have heard of this thing that's in existence since social media has really taken off, which is the echo chamber. We just surround ourselves by people with the same views. And so we just get the same views back. So in some ways that's a bit depressing because it means we never change our mind. But in another way, actually, the Buddha's always said that was true. Padmasambha said it's true. We can choose then who we want to be and surround ourselves by those people. And if we want to cultivate faith, surround ourselves by people with faith. And then a kind of collective myth comes into being that we respond to. Um, echo chambers can be quite positive as well as negative. One of the things that, um, I don't know who said it, but uh, we sometimes say is the Dharma is caught, not taught. You can teach the Dharma, but actually what may has the most uh, effect is the atmosphere of the Sangha around you. And I definitely, well, as I've said, I think that was the first thing that struck me, was that kind of atmosphere of friendliness. And also being taken seriously. I remember that was quite, I was 17 at the time, so being taken seriously uh, intellectually even, by adults was quite a, a big thing for me. 
And it also means that we've got a responsibility on us to be faithful companions. Uh, the Buddha said that to give the gifts of fearlessness and um, the gifts of the Dharma are the greatest gifts that we can give. So it's up to us to communicate positive values, uh, to communicate positive emotions and to enable others to have faith arise in them by our own faith. So what it's saying is that our practice also has an effect on others. He says that faith arises when following a master or spiritual teacher. So this goes back to the conditions of faith being people and not just ideas. When we hear the Dharma, we hear it from another person. We hear it from someone further along the path. But it's also not just one direction. They also see us. We witness their practice, they're going for refuge, and they witness our going for refuge. Um, this gives rise in Buddhism to a state called apatrapya or otapa. And it means that when we look up to someone, um, we look up to them because they embody our values. And because they embody our values, uh, they remind us of our values. So it's very important to be around those people who are reflecting back our sort of higher values, if you like, people we look up to. Um, they remind us when we've lived up to our values and what our values are, and they see us in that. So there's a kind of communication between us and um, people who embody what's highest in us, in a sense. In our order, the most important expression of this is our preceptor, for the benefit of Lydia. <laughs> um, yes, so when you're in, ordained into the Sri Ratna Buddhist order, you get ordained in a little hut called a kuti. And I think in a way what the kuti is, is an image of faith. Um, and at that moment when you're ordained by your preceptor, the preceptor is embodying that faith. Uh, what I've experienced in that relationship is there's very little to do with personality in there. It's almost like the relationship in that kind of ritual context is completely one of faith. It's completely one of, of both parties embodying higher values. Um, and I think because that's, there's that really kind of strong relationship within the kuti uh, and in ordination, um, that's why it's important to keep up with your preceptor after ordination. <laughs> in fact, there's an Asaya period of five years you have to keep up especially a lot of contact. But, um, and I think what's interesting is when you don't want to be in contact with your preceptor, it's because actually you're a bit ashamed of yourself because you've fallen away from your sort of mutual values. You've fallen away from that uh, relationship of faith. So yes, with your preceptor or your spiritual teacher, um, you, in a way, you said yes to the qualities that they embody, which reflect your own higher values. And that relationship is one of loyalty, loyalty to those higher values. It's not about authority. It's about um, remaining true to the values that you see in each other. And sometimes you fall a bit short of those ideals. You fall short of those values, and sometimes they do. But that's the relationship, and it reminds both of you of those values that you share. He says, faith arises when making offerings at a special shrine. So I think the special shrine here could be a personal shrine or it could be a shrine uh, where you go on pilgrimage or um, 
a kind of collective shrine. So that personal shrine embodies your connection with what you value. I know that my shrine has all sorts of things on it that mean absolutely nothing to anyone else. It's actually got a packet of biscuits on it, which, <laughs> you know, it means something very important to me, but it won't mean anything to you. <laughs> and I think that's the beauty of having your own shrine, actually, is that you can, you can express those values in ways that are meaningful only to you. But it's also um, very important to go to on pilgrimage, you know, whether it's in a funny kind of way, whether it's to Manchester Buddhist Centre or to Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha got enlightened, um, where the great masters have been. Um, I think what happens in those, uh, those, those times is you realise it's possible. You know, the Buddha actually existed and he existed here. Admittedly, a very long time ago, but he existed here. Um, in the Pali text, this gives rise to a state of mind called Sangveja, which means um, sort of urgency, a sense of urgency and commitment to the path. And I think that arises because um, at those special shrines, you sort of see what's possible in terms of enlightenment, but you also see that they've gone. So I think that's the thing about going to India is, is quite, you know, if you ever do get the chance, I think it's quite a, an important experience because you're going to all these um, Buddhist places where the Buddha lived and taught and the great disciples lived and taught, but actually they're ruins. I mean, a lot of the Buddhists, Buddhists in, got massacred in India, you know, in the 13th century by the Muslim invaders. So it's like, actually, essentially what you're doing is you're standing in front of a pile of bricks because it's gone, it left India, and the Buddha has gone. And there's ju juxtaposition of seeing what's possible and seeing that it's no longer there that makes you realise that, that human life is short and there are many conditions operating on us. So if we're going to do it, do it now. So I think the uh, making offerings at, at special shrines is something to do also with a kind of physical act a process of creating and giving and putting ourselves in a special atmosphere. And also um, gratitude, being aware of, of what we've received and beauty. I think if you're ever in a really difficult state of mind, what I really recommend you do is you clean your shrine and you build a new shrine. And there's something about that which brings us back into the, our relationship with our ideals. In a way, we become confronted by the Buddha again. And um, Bhante says that when uh, you're confronting the Buddha, with the Buddha, it's like you've got two stringed instruments side by side. And when you pluck the strings of one, the other one vibrates, which is a very beautiful image. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I do recommend making offerings at, at, at special shrines or even your own shrine. It does bring you back into relationship with your ideals and what you value. He says, faith arises when hearing the life example of lineage masters. And again, it reminds us that uh, living the spiritual life, uh, insight, enlightenment, the bodhicitta is possible. Um, here are people dealing with similar issues to us. And when we hear the thread of their life, we see that thread in our own life. And we see ourselves as part of that movement of transcendence. So he specifically mentions lineage masters because we're in that lineage. Um, 
And I think it's very useful actually to, if, to read the autobiographies of Sangharashta, because I think what you see is you both see his immense contribution to Buddhism and how he worked that out, and also his sort of human failings. What there is is kind of human biography and a sort of Buddhist biography, a kind of even a transcendental biography. And that exists within him and it exists within us. And I think the more I reflect on Bhante's actual life, the more I realise that it sort of see his significance in terms of the spread of Buddhism and also see his weaknesses. And that also helps me understand my part in the lineage of Buddhism, my part in the movement of transcendence and also my weaknesses. It's almost like only when understanding life stories and personalities and human weaknesses are we not limited by them. I better speed up. So faith arises when listening to the Vajra songs of realization. Uh, in the Pali Canon, we have the inspired utterances of the Buddha, the Udana, uh, the inspired utterances and songs of uh, the early monks and nuns who became enlightened. We've got the songs of Milarepa and the songs of the Siddhas. And I love the Vajra songs of realization because they're spontaneous and beautiful and raw and direct and uncontrived. They're not limited by space and time or even culture. They're sort of um, celebratory and joyful. They're sort of just explosions of realization. And because they're so uncontrived and unthought out and spontaneous, I think they can really speak to us here and now. They're the sort of direct lineage of inspiration in a way. And they touch our heart because they're not just theory. He says, faith arises when reading the sacred teachings of your inclination. So I think another important thing to do is just to see what, uh, where your mind alights, where your heart alights, what really inspires you, even if you don't know why. So sometimes it's good to follow um, one's inclination. It doesn't really, you know, so we can be worried about cherry picking or just taking the bits of the Dharma that we like. I don't think it's quite like that. I think also it's just really important to just see where you respond and to let yourself respond, even if it's something you can't quite work out why, even if it's the poetry of, I don't know, Christian mystics from the 13th century in the lowlands, which is what I'm quite inspired by now. It sort of touches your heart and allows your heart to open and brings you into relationship with higher values and something that's really important without knowing particularly why. I think that's why solitary retreats are very important because you've just got that completely open time to explore whatever you want to explore. I always bring a plan with me on solitary retreats and universally I have never followed it because you just have to just let yourself respond where you respond. So faith arises when noticing qualities of sublime beings noting the qualities of people who are in higher mental states than we are, um, more positive states of mind. And this is very important because otherwise we limit our consciousness to what we're experiencing now. And of course it's very important to put ourselves in contact with the fact that actually there's a different possibility, there's a higher possibility than where we are now. People who are really embodying the Brahma Viharas of positive emotions, of uh, loving kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy and delight and equanimity. 
So being in contact with those person reminds us that actually there is a state of consciousness that's higher. Faith arises when receiving blessings of your master. So this is a kind of sensitivity to what's called adhisthana. Blessings is adhisthana. Um, it's receptivity to the quality that's communicated between the master and disciple. So uh, adhisthana means, uh, the way Bhante uh, described adhisthana is he said that um, he said that every object, every person exerts an influence. And for people in concentrated states of mind, that influence is more than other people and other things. So sometimes, it's, uh, sometimes we can't quite do it on, it on our own. I think this is what Padmasambha was saying. Sometimes we need the inspiration of others. We need the blessings of our master. I think it's also the blessings of our sangha. I think there's times when um, you know, I've been really struggling with my own inspiration and I've been on retreat or I've been on a convention and just being surrounded by the sangha, uh, I feel that something's lifted and it's not quite coming from me. I think we have to entrust sometimes in something beyond our own limited sphere of consciousness. Western uh, thought is very, very much identified with one own, one's own subjective consciousness, but actually there's more than that. Reality is far more complex than just what we're experiencing here and now. And sometimes we need to put ourselves in contact with something that's sort of beyond ourselves in a sense. And the last one is that faith arises when gathering special accumulations. So this is punya or merit and jnana or wisdom. So basically it means that faith arises when we're on the path, when we're gathering merit, when we're doing all the things that we know we should do, sort of positive habits in a sense, when we're practicing ethics, practicing uh, meditation and um, studying the Dharma. I know that um, Dada Rinpoche said, when we're in doubt, when you're in doubt, if you're in doubt, just do something for someone else. And that's a very good thing to remember, actually. You can get very complicated, but actually, when in doubt, do something for others. So just to conclude, faith arises from a deep reflection on dukkha and it also uh, arises of a, from a vision of something more. Um, and Padmasambha is saying that we have to take responsibility for not only investigating uh, the conditions that give rise to faith, but also putting ourselves in conditions where faith will arise. Faith arises in dependence on conditions. And faith is itself uh, a positive condition um, for other positive mental states. It says that every positive mental state is based in faith. It's the root of all positive mental states. And I think this is very, very important for us in a kind of world of post-truth, as it's called. Um, a world where meaning is hard to find, when kind of cynicism is rife. Actually, what we need to do for ourselves and others is to cultivate faith and to communicate it um, to others with our very being. So,